can't be stopped in a wheel within a wheel up here, so I guess it's appropriate. This was a gift from one of our elderly people that colored it. <laughs> now, from one of the younger ones. I mentioned, uh, I guess, a week or two ago that we were having our Sabbaths, uh, double Sabbaths. That really was not the correct term. Uh, the one that I needed didn't come to me. It's really back-to-back Sabbaths, one after the other. Uh, double Sabbath is when you have a holy day on a weekly Sabbath is a better nomenclature to use. I don't even know why they use back-to-back, because... They aren't back-to-back. They're front-to-back. Or back-to-front. This one ends and the other one starts. So it's the back of this one and the front of tomorrow. But back-to-back works is a common expression. Anyway, we do have a Sabbath again beginning at sunset tonight. So... The Sabbath is dead, long live the Sabbath, (laughs) as they do with the kings. So uh, atonement comes tomorrow, as I'm sure we're all aware, and we'll be meeting at 1 o'clock without potluck, of course, uh, tomorrow afternoon. And the Feast of Tabernacles begins this coming Friday, And we'll have services on that day at 1 o'clock as we do, followed by a potluck on that day. And uh, we have a feast schedule made up. They'll probably pass it out to you tomorrow so you can kind of plan some of your activities around when services are and and, in our formal get-togethers as opposed to the things you do on on your own. So, getting a little cooler we're now past the summer and in the fall season. You don't notice it so much here, I guess, in some ways, but uh, there's a scripture that tells us that the Feast of Tabernacles can't come in the summer. It has to come in the fall after the turn of the season. So we're doing it right, and I'm thankful that we understand that. I'm going to finish up a series I've been doing uh, today on friendship. Uh, I keep thinking I'm going to get done, and then I get talking, and, and then the hour, hour and 15 minutes really is gone. But we'll, we'll get through some of these today and wrap this up, so we'll have something different for the Day of Atonement, meet and do season for that. But let's go back to Proverbs and pick up a few more here in chapter 17. Uh, bearing in mind, if this is getting old to you, uh, being friends with God is as important a thing as there is. And being friends with each other and loving one another as we love ourselves is the second most important thing there is. So uh, this may not be new doctrine, it may not be titillating in that sense, but These are very basic things in Scripture that we need to understand and grasp in our personal relationships in order to get along as God would have us get along. Uh, We not only have to get along with Him throughout eternity, we have to get along with each other 
throughout eternity. And this is the time where we learn, hopefully, uh, as much of that as we can accomplish in this human life. And what gets in our way is our human nature and our carnal mind and our selfishness uh, that make us want to love ourselves more than we love others. We put ourselves first in thought, in action, indeed, way too often instead of others. So let's pick this up in chapter 17 and down in verse 17. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Now, there's an interesting paradox there. Perhaps it's based partly on the thought, you pick your friends, or you can pick friends. And if you pick someone to be a friend, it's because of the characteristics and the personality that they have and the caring and the kindness and the love that they show. So you can pick that out of a bunch of people and find maybe what you're looking for to be friends with, but you can't pick your relatives, is an old saying. <laughs> They're just who they are. And when it says, a brother is born for adversity, I think we've all seen siblings and sibling arguments and confrontations and bad feelings between brothers, uh, you can't choose your relatives. They are what they are. And uh, you try to get along with them, and sometimes that's difficult, very difficult. But the blood is there. What do you do with that? You just kind of have to deal with it and get along the best you can because there are going to be times when there's family reunions uh, and trouble comes. That's why Christmas and Easter and some of these holidays the world keeps are the most frustrating times for people. They build up to it thinking this is going to be wonderful, and then the family gets together, and it doesn't always go that way. Uh, it uh, creates difficulties when people get together. So uh, that doesn't mean that all brotherhood and all sisterhood is adverse or bad or difficult, but it's just what it is. But a friend that you choose and choose to be friends with is someone that hopefully will love at all times. Now, you've had friends that you've had arguments with and difficulties with. We all have. But there are friendships like Jonathan and David had, like Christ had with John, uh, where they loved pretty much at all times. They were that close, that bonded, that much alike in personality, that much alike in their way of thinking, that they could get along with each other. And it's a goal, it's a purpose that we all need to have. And we should all here be friends with each other. God has called us here to be that. And whatever stands in the way of that, we need to find a way around and through and get over it and become friends, all of us, together. I was going to go to 
3 John 14, toward the end of this, but I think I'll go ahead and mention it now without turning, where John says at the end of his third book there, Greet all the friends by name. So he was writing this epistle to all the church and said to each congregation then, as it came to them, Greet all the friends by name. Be close enough, be loving enough, that there's not a name there that you wouldn't mention. (laughs) In other words, use them all. And John was a man of love, more so than any of the disciples or apostles and so on. Uh, He was very close to Jesus the Christ because Christ was all love. And since John loved so much, they had something in common there that knitted them together more than the other disciples or apostles were able to knit. It's just that simple. The closer we are together in God's love, the more we can be knit together. And that is a goal and a purpose. He's put us together as a body. And a body loves all its parts, pretty much. I get a little frustrated with some of mine sometimes, but uh, generally a body is to work together for the comfort of the whole. I stepped on a real sharp goat head last night, and it hurt all the way from my left heel to the top of my head. And I kind of let it know what I thought of it as I pulled pretty hard to get it out. That was one of those long, sharp ones that went in. It's still sore. But my heel made the rest of me uncomfortable. Something got in the way of that little part of the body and made the whole thing uncomfortable. And God tells us that the body is to work together in concert, that it is to be at peace, one piece with the other. All parts fitting together in whatever place God has placed us in the body. You can be a heart, a brain, a spleen, you know. I don't know what God made each of us for, but we're all here. And he is the one who called us and placed us here and made us part of that body. Now, body parts start fighting with each other and giving each other trouble. That makes the whole body uncomfortable. Now, last night... That was an outside influence, a goat head. But what if my hands decided that they didn't like each other and started beating on each other? Pretty soon, my body would be all in turmoil. Doesn't your digester sometimes fight with your other parts? (laughs) You know, don't your eyes sometimes fight with other parts? Yeah, and we as a body have a goal and a purpose to get along and to get along well with one another. Now we fall short of it, but we should be working on it. We shouldn't be giving up on it. It's like growing and overcoming. 
We are always to grow. We are always to overcome and grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. So there's no time to sit still or sit back and not be involved. We have to be involved. Now, if I'm an athlete and I'm performing a task in basketball or football or soccer or swimming or whatever, and my body is trying to work in concert to do the very best it can, if one part rebels, I'm in trouble. I remember chasing a fly ball one time without a warm-up when I was in my 40s, and I pulled a hamstring real bad. And just that one hamstring pull ruined my whole game. It ruined my month. <laughs> my body was having trouble getting along with itself there. And I was so happy when that was healed and I could move about without pain. And we want a congregation to move about and to move forward without pain. So all our parts need to work together in synchrony and work well together. That's our goal. We need to do everything we can to accomplish that because we're brothers. And sometimes there's adversity. God has placed us as brothers and sisters together. Now, we could be friends, but you find some here who think differently than you do. That's true in any group. You'll find some that think more like you do and some who think less like you do because we're all different. And we need to learn to get along all of us together. We may get to that scripture today. I'm not really sure. Uh, now I lost the thought. Maybe we'll get to it or it'll come back here in a second. Um, there we went. Let's go on. Moving on down, verse 18, A man void of understanding strikes hands and becomes surety in the presence of his friend. Last week we saw one where we need to be careful who we shake hands with because sometimes you're making a deal that won't work so well. But here it's the other side of that coin. A man of bad of a man void of understanding strikes hands and becomes surety in the presence of his friend. Uh, a man void of heart is is in the Hebrew. A man void of heart strikes hands and becomes surety in the presence of his friend. So he has a heart of love, or he doesn't. He's void of it, or he has it, and. We should be able to deal with our friends and shake hands and it'd be a done deal. You know, there was a time that I can even remember in America when you didn't have to write anything on paper. You didn't need it. If somebody shook your hand and said, I'll do that, it was a done deal. They would stand up to their word. Now, that was through part of society. I understand that. There are always scoundrels around. Always have been and always will be. But I think a majority of Americans, say a hundred years ago, 75 
years ago, their word was their bond. And if they gave you their word, you could pretty much count on it. But anymore, it's a lot more difficult. Much more difficult. Now you can get 16 lawyers and write contracts, and they'll still find a way around it and a way to cheat you anyhow. Because we have gotten less honest in all of our dealings as a people, as a nation. And it's sad to see because we're not like this where if you have heart or if you're void of heart, you come up with an entirely different uh, outcome. Let's see. He loves transgression that loves strife. And he that exalts his gate seeks destruction. If we exalt ourselves above others, uh, and we love strife, we like to fight, we like to cause difficulties, that's headed for destruction. You know, you might say, well, I don't like strife, I don't like arguing, I don't like fighting. Maybe you don't. But you still might have a proclivity to say things that would upset others and frustrate others if they knew or heard what you had to say. And that's easy to do, to talk about somebody when they're not around, (coughs) and you pay a price down the road sometimes, sometimes, some way. It catches up. Go to 18.24. A man that has friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Kind of a little bit on the same lines as that last one. Uh, You can have friends that are closer than a brother tends to be because of the past and hardships and hard feelings and things you do to each other as you grow up and so on. But the first part of that, I wanted to concentrate on a little more. If you have friends, you must show yourself friendly. God is telling us here, throughout the Bible, that we need to be friends with one another. That that is a goal and a purpose. Friends with Him, friends with each other. That is, you think well of each other. You do good for each other. You're there to be a help to others. And isn't that really what friendship is all about? If you have trouble, you don't necessarily call somebody that hates you to come help you. No, you call somebody that you like, that hopefully likes you, and that you think would be willing to help you with whatever it is that you need help with. So you call on somebody that you think is well disposed toward you. And... That's why we call on God, ultimately, because we know He loves us and cares about us and wants the best for us. So we call on Him. We're a little more picky who we call upon as humans. Well, I know so-and-so is going to be too busy, or they don't care, or whatever attitude you might have is why you don't call so-and-so. And you will call the other so-and-so because you know they care and are probably going to be willing to help. So you're willing to take that risk to do it. 
But if you're going to have friends, you've got to be friendly. You've got to be smiling and warm and helpful and caring and being friendly instead of remote or selfish or unapproachable or whatever. We have to learn to be approachable. And people will approach us once they see that we care enough to care for them or do for them or help them or whatever. And sometimes we help each other without even being asked, don't we? You see somebody doing something, and I've noticed that around here. Man, something needs done. People show up. Just the way it's been since we first established this. When we get a community project, everybody's there. Putting a building up, planting a garden, gathering firewood, you name it. Uh, if it was being done, people showed up to help. And I still see that. It hasn't gone away, and I truly appreciate it that we're willing to help one another. We're willing to do what we can. And that shows me that we're trying to become godly, that we're trying to do it the way God would do it. And what a compliment that can be to be able even to say that, that there is cooperation and there is help, and people are willing to show themselves as friendly and helpful. Uh, we need a pat on the back a little bit once, once in a while instead of just being told how bad we are. And uh, there's both. <laughs> we are human, and we are selfish by nature. And it is only by God's Spirit that we overcome that and become loving and kind and gentle and true friends. But stick closer than a brother. Chapter 19, in verse uh, 4. Wealth makes many friends. We've all seen and experienced that. Somebody is wealthy, friends just sort of come out of the woodwork. All you got to do is win a lottery. You'll find that out. You'll have friends you never heard of, relatives you never heard of, closer than a brother you never heard of, because that's what wealth can do. But the poor is separated from his neighbor. I'll recount a, a personal experience that I saw. My parents lived in a, oh, it was not a fancy home, but a nice, clean place with trees around it and outside of Gladewater, Texas. And uh, they had friends in the church. And Dad worked out at the college, so at some point he got tired of driving back and forth. And they found this house in Big Sandy that uh, was on a nice piece of ground. But the house was quite old. And it kind of leaned a little bit like that. And the, the the boards on the side of the house were aged and shrunk where, yeah, the birds could kind of fly through. Uh, in other words, it was dilapidated. And it needed a lot of tender, loving care before it would be a nice home. But people who had been their friends in the Big Sandy congregation got where they wouldn't speak to them. Because they'd moved into this run-down old house. Now, they didn't owe much on it because it wasn't worth much. 
and I don't remember now if they had a payment, maybe they did for a while. But Dad began to work on it, and Mom did. And I went down and spent a few weeks, and so did my brothers and different ones. And over a period of time, it got straight, and it got new siding, and it got the inside torn out then and rebuilt. And first thing you know, it was a pretty nice-looking house. But those friends that they had lost never came back. They were unfriendly with them because they were not up with the Joneses, I guess would be the term. They were the same people they'd always been, that had been friends before. But now they were lower in the eyes of others because of where they lived. We need to be better friends than that. The poor is separated from his neighbor. That was just an example that came to mind that fits that. A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaks lies shall not escape. False witness, uh, lies about people, that's not friendly. That's not friendship. That deters and destroys friendship. All the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, yet they deny him or get away from him or don't want anything to do with him. So you can try to be friendly, but if you have become of lower estate, you're lower now in their eyes than you were before. And therefore they want nothing to do with you. So what kind of friend is it that wants you because of your wealth? Fair weather friend. What kind of friend is it that doesn't want you when you are poor? That's a bad weather friend, I guess. They they disappear. They go in where it's warm somewhere else. They don't want to be around you because you don't have. That's human. Oh, that's the scripture I was trying to think of where where Christ said, when you throw a party, don't just invite your friends. Don't just invite the same ones in your uh, financial class. Invite the poor and the maimed and the weak and the uneducated and, and the other people that you might normally consider lower than your class or caste, maybe. Invite them. Not just people you like to be around, but maybe people that you wouldn't want to and you need to learn to get along with, instead of just blotting them out. Who did Christ come to save? The sinners. You know, where every one of us are way beneath the Father and the Son. Way beneath them. Not even any comparison. And yet, Jesus Christ came to this earth to save the sinners. All those who were lower than he was. And every one of them was lower than he was. And we don't even need to compare ourselves among ourselves because compared to the Father and the Son, we're nothing. And that's what Job had to learn. He was pretty proud of the good things that he did and how wonderful a neighbor and a friend he was. And he had an ego problem. 
And then God put him with through Satan what all Job went through, and he lost everything he had, and he finally realized the vast gulf there was, was between him and God. And then he quit defending himself because he realized he had no defense. <laughs> you know, we can think highly of ourselves and we can delude ourselves that we're okay. And we can look at others and think they're not okay because they're not what we are. But when God got through with Job, Job was poor in spirit. There was a Berean on that just the other day from John Reitenbaugh. Very well done, showing what Job had to learn. And when you're that far below God, you're not that much different than your neighbors. We're all in the same boat together, and all of us lacking in righteousness as God has it. All right, let's go to 22, verse 11 here. He that loves pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. Christ tells us there in the Gospels, the, the uh, Gospel on the Mount, that we are to be pure in heart. And when a ruler, a king, sees somebody who has a pure heart, he's not just there for what he can get, he's just not there for uh, climbing the social ladder or whatever reasons we have for doing the things we do, but is pure in his motives, his desires. He's really not there to get something for himself as he is to serve and to love and to help and to give. And when a king or a ruler sees that pureness of heart there, he can't help but gravitate toward and like and become a friend with that kind of person. Now, you've seen that where people seemed willing out of a right motivation. And then you've seen people where you can kind of see through and realize, eh, I wonder what he wants. <laughs> you know? You, you see the motivation just as clearly because it's there. They keep score. They want to be sure you know what it is that they're doing and they'll remind you of it, all the good deeds they do and all the wonderful things they do for people. Because they, they are letting their right hand and their left hand and you know what they're doing. Now God says if it's out of a pure heart, you won't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. They're just both busy helping and doing and serving and giving and loving. And they don't take time to compare. Uh, how did you do today? Did you do anything good? I did this and this and this. Well... Oh, oh, you did that? Oh, okay, well, that's nearly as good as what I did. No. Your right hand, your left hand could be your right brain and your left brain, comparing sides at night on how wonderful you were that day. And then we have to occasionally tell each other uh, how much we serve, how much we give, how much we do. No. No. God says you lose the reward. 
You lose the reward by letting your right hand and your left hand be proud of what they've done and compare notes. You lose your reward when you tell others how wonderful you've been. Now, we want our reward to be in heaven. We want God to reward us for things that we do because that's what we've become. We've become a friend. We've become a servant. We've become someone who automatically does good and helps others because it's become part of our personality, part of our character. God working through us to become that way instead of the selfish, greedy, uh, carnal thing that we have been and still tend to be or want to be by nature. But God helps us become a true servant who's just there to help and therefore doesn't need accolades, doesn't necessarily need pats on the back, doesn't need to be told how wonderful they are, or if no one else says it, I'll say it myself, thank you. You know? And if someone does tell you something and compliment you and pat you on the back, wonderful. That should be humbling. That God, not you, was able to make some changes so that you're able to be what you ought to be, and God gets the credit instead of us because we're so wonderful. Because we're not. It is by His Spirit that we become, hopefully, ultimately, wonderful. Christ is described as wonderful. And I hesitate to use that term. Uh, there are a lot of terms like that that we use in common everyday speech. And maybe somebody did something that in your eyes on a physical human basis was wonderful. But when I think of it in a larger sense, Christ and the Father are wonderful. And we, by comparison, are kind of wonderful. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no comparison. So sometimes we use those superlatives when really we're only a small fraction of the wonder that they are. Or we'll say awesome. That's become a real common one today. Oh, you got me a drink of what? Awesome. That's not awesome. Awesome is bigger than that. <laughs> but we tend to misuse terminology like that. There's nothing awesome about any of us. We're just human beings. God is awesome. The universe he made is awesome. Our bodies that he has formed so perfectly and beautifully are awesome because it's the work of God. And there's a difference there. But we can, I suppose, use those terminologies and words on a lower level to describe things that are good. I don't like the word lucky. No. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father in heaven. I'm not lucky. I hope I can be blessed, but not lucky. 
I want the things that are good that happen to come from God. Hopefully because I'm doing what I should be doing and He's willing to bless me. But you know, if you receive good, that doesn't necessarily mean it came from God. Because He lets it rain on the just and the unjust. He set up a system here on the earth that can, if people do good, uh, cause good things to happen. And oftentimes we see somebody and think, there's a scoundrel, how did that happen? <clears throat> Why didn't somebody good win the lottery instead of that jerk? You know? But God has set up a system, and it rains on the just and the unjust. But isn't it nice to be in a position where God is dealing with you personally, and you don't have to depend on luck. You can depend on God's good wishes and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness, and the good will come from that. That's a better source of good than luck. I don't want luck. I want God. Okay, let's go on. Uh, 27.6 here. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If you have a, a good friend, they're willing to sometimes tell you the truth. They're willing to tell you, even at pain or being rejected, something that you might ought to know that would help you if you did understand it and follow it, it might help you. But you can have an enemy who doesn't like you and really wants the worst for you, but he can make up to you and act like he's friendly when really he isn't a friend. We've probably all seen those things where people will butter you up when they really don't have your best interests in mind at all because they're trying to get something or do something to you. So, there's a contrast. Better to be uh, corrected, wounded by a friend, than to be kissed by an enemy. But our pride gets in our way, and sometimes it's hard for us to listen when somebody's trying to tell us. I'm, the expression, maybe it's a little gross, but or, or whatever, but it says, a friend will tell you when they got a booger hanging out your nose. An enemy might not. They'll just let you go through life with it hanging there. But a friend will tell you so you can fix it. So it can be better. Just as a crude example. Uh, verse 10 here. Where, where did I go to? Your own friend and your father's friend forsake not. Neither go into your brother's house in the day of your calamity... For better is a neighbor or a friend that is near than a brother far off. So he says, be truthful, be faithful, be uh, supportive of friends, and don't go away from them. If you find somebody that can be a friend, be faithful and true, and don't forsake them, because you need them and they need you. So fix it. Make it work. 
verse 14. He that blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it shall be counted as a curse to him. <laughs> oh, we're friends. I can call you at 5 a.m. and tell you good morning. Well, that will not be looked upon as a friendly gesture. You, you get tired of that pretty fast. Uh, sometimes we maybe get a little out of range. What's that, that other proverb that talks about not putting your foot on your friend's doorstep or your neighbor's doorstep too frequently? kind of goes along with this. Uh, if you're there too much, there can be frustrations. You know, we all need a certain amount of privacy. We need a certain amount of time to ourselves, time with God, time with just solitude and to think and to plan and to work and to do the things we need to do. But there are people who want to be friends all the time, night and day. They want to be at your house or on your phone or on your text or whatever all the time. And they become not a friend and a neighbor, but a pest. Because they're just there too much. That happens with relatives. It happens with friends. You know, we all should have our own household. We should keep our household separate. And we shouldn't be at our friends or our neighbors or our relatives' house too much. Because everybody needs time and privacy and solitude. And sometimes a husband and a wife just want to be together and spend time together, maybe not even say a word for hours. They're just together, together alone. And they enjoy each other's company. And maybe they'll hold hands and maybe they'll talk a little. I know Marlon and I used to go sit in the yard and we might not say anything for a half an hour. But we were together and we were alone and it was nice. And we'd go on a long trip and sit and hold hands for hours just because we were in the car alone together. Everybody needs time alone or just with a mate or just with a family. And we need to be sure we keep that separate. Sure, you can be together some, but not too much. Because it doesn't matter whether it's friend, relative, or what, if you're on the doorstep too often, it creates a certain amount of friction and doesn't give people the time they need just with themselves or their own personal family. So we need to be real careful about being too pushy about it. And that's what this verse is. Blessed He that blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning uh, counted a curse. It's just too much, too frequently, and unnecessary, and creates a certain amount of dissension and difficulty. Whether it's spoken or not, the friction is there. It's just there, because it's too much too often. Uh, 27, let's see, let's go on to uh, verse 17. Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Truly, friends should help sharpen each other. We should help each other become 
what we ought to be. Uh, if you're using an axe, you want it to be sharp. If you're using a chainsaw, you want it to be sharp. It gets more done uh, quicker and with less effort if it's sharp. And we as people, if we grow and we improve and we overcome, then we're better Christians, we're better people. So if we have friends, those friends should help each other grow and become more what they ought to be. Now you have the contrast in friends who are birds of a feather who tend to flock together because they got the same problem. Maybe they drink too much. And so you don't want to drink with somebody who doesn't drink or somebody that won't drink much because if you have a problem in it, you want to drink with somebody that drinks like you do. Bottoms up. So... Do you pick each other up and help each other? No, you just go to the bottom of the barrel together. We need to be able to spend time with those that help us grow, those that help us be better human beings. And iron sharpens iron. You get a whetstone or a sharpening iron and it sharpens the axe. It makes it a better axe. And therefore, we should be helping each other grow, not pulling each other down. If you get with somebody and it's a downer, oh, so-and-so did such-and-such, so-and-so such-and-such. That's somebody I don't like. That's somebody I don't care for. They're this and they're that. And then you both get down in the dumps about others and become negative. That doesn't help anybody. That's why Philippians 4.8 is there. Speak on the things that are good and useful and helpful and friendly and loving and kind and gentle and anything good. If you can find anything good. My mother, my grandmother, my aunts all preach to me over and over. If you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything. I remember that. It was drilled into me. Haven't always followed it because we can find ourselves speaking negative so very, very easily. But we're not supposed to. God says don't. How much negativity do you find in the Bible about individuals? You find a lot of negativity about sinners. But you don't find much negativity in here about people. Very little. And they were totally, generally ungodly people if that happened. But God speaks well most of the time. And that's what he tells us we ought to do. So let's sharpen each other and help each other to be brighter, sharper, better Christians. Is should be our goal and our purpose. Now let's go to Micah 7. <clears throat> this is a prophetic section, and it touches on the situation we find ourselves in today. Now, we should be able to shake hands and make deals and honor them. We should be able to have friends, but 
we have some warning here as well to go along with that. Chapter 7 of Micah. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. He says, I'm like a man that comes along after they've already taken all the fruit off the trees, and there's nothing left for me. The good man is perished out of the earth. The one you could shake hands with and trust that it would happen. There is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. We're getting more and more day by day like that in the United States, the disunited states of America. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asks and the judge asks for a reward. They're all in it for the money. And the great man, he utters his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. They're wrapped up in sin and money and selfishness. And you see that now. Our country is greatly divided, and people are willing to shed each other's blood, and they're advocating killing people on the other side, and civil war is coming. Let's go on down. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. Who are you going to vote for? The day of your watchman and your visitation comes. The time that the watchmen have been warning about when these things are visited upon us. And we're already in it now. We're not anticipating it. We're in it. It's just getting worse day by day, week by week, and month by month until it becomes blood in the streets continually. Now shall be their perplexity. Trouble comes, and then they're perplexed. Trust you not in a friend. Put you not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. Your own mate. For the son dishonors the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. It's becoming that way in our country, worse and worse, day by day. I was talking to a man just the other day about some of the things that are going on, just a salesman I was talking to, and I told him, I think we'll be in a civil war any time now, within months. He says, oh yeah, he says, I have a friend over in Oregon that, I grew up with. We went to school with each other, all the way through school. We were just close buddies. He says, now I can't even talk to him. The guy I was talking to is on the more patriotic, uh, constitutional, conservative side, and his friend had gone totally liberal Oregonian, Western Oregon. He said, I can't even talk to him. We're just at odds. Nothing in common anymore. Basically enemies. That's what God's saying here. It'll become. Where you can't even trust your own kids or your own wife or husband out in this world. Because you don't know which side of the fence they're going to be on. And you probably have relatives like that. You're more conservative. You're thinking more like this book tells us to think. 
and you've got some liberal, Democrat, whatever uh, relatives that you can't talk to. It become the blows in a hurry. It's getting it's getting worse, constantly getting worse. Therefore, what? Verse seven. Therefore, I will look to the eternal. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. When it gets down to the point where in our nation you can't trust anybody and you don't know who will shoot you and who will not, you can't even tell completely by the way they dress or anything else. It'll be hard to know who the true enemies are. And you can't trust anybody around you. And even husbands and wives will betray one another. That's where our society is coming to. Matthew 24 tells us even church members will turn on one another and turn each other in to save their own miserable hides. Those who are supposed to be friends in love with each other and in love with God will turn on each other because sin abounds and the love of many waxes cold. I don't want to be that way with any of you. I know everybody in this room. And I want to be with friends with you until we rise to meet Christ in the air and become friends, better friends, forevermore. And I want to work at it with each and every one of you to become that way. We don't have to be what Micah is describing here. He's not prophesying this about you and me. He's prophesying this about first the church, yes, and then the nation who will become this way. And we've already seen it happen in the church where this group is against that group is against that group and these are all Laodiceans because I said so and I'm a Philadelphian and we become estranged to each other in the church. Disagree. And now it's happened in our nation. And the fight is going to become bloodletting and civil war, ruler against ruler. Those people in Washington are going to start killing each other. They've already started threatening to. And then they're going to do it. Because it says so in this book. It's going to happen. And you won't be able to trust your neighbors around you here. You don't know what side they'll be on. And if God allows, they'll come in and steal your food and they'll shoot you to get it. Our love needs to go deeper than that. Our comradeship, our helping each other, our protecting each other needs to go deeper than that. We don't need to be victims of this prophecy. God wants us to rise above it and not go there. To learn to serve each other and help each other, and in that degree, to trust each other, to have our best interests in mind. There needs to be trust built among us and between us because we are able to trust the same God. And if he's working through all of us, then we can have a certain amount of trust because of God and our devotion to him and his way. So it's really God 
being trusted through each other. As we serve God, that builds a trust. And we need to have that. Now, when it says, trust no man in here, that is not a contradiction. You can trust God totally, completely. He's utterly trustworthy. But there's no man on earth, when it comes right down to it, who is utterly trustworthy. We can be different levels of that. We can grow in that. But none of us can be totally what God is as long as we're human. So, yes, you can trust in people with what you can see and what you see happening and judge by their fruits whether they are trustworthy or not, whether they can be counted on or not. And we can have a certain level of that kind of confidence in each other. But when all else fails, verse 7 comes into play. I will trust my God who will hear me, because he is the epitome of friendship. He always puts others ahead of himself. God always does that. He has put all of us on this earth ahead of himself. He created us like we are and put us ahead of himself. And he's dealing with us to make us like himself. That's his goal and purpose. Then he doesn't have to put up with us anymore. He can love us on the same level that he is. And that'll be a better love than what he can show now. You know, he's not limited to how much love he can show, but we limit him. It's us that limit him, not him that limits us. Does he sometimes want to bless us? Yes. But he ponders our heart and he sees that it might go to our head, that we might become vain and egocentric, and all these things that we tend to be, so it limits what he can do for us. Now once we become spirit and totally trustworthy, he can do more for us. It's like the kid... Who wants a bike? And I tell him, well, do your chores, obey, eat your dinner, and do the things that I require of you. And if you do that, I'll gift you with a bike. And then the kid doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And then he comes and says, well, I want my bike. And I say, son, you limited yourself, or daughter. You can't have a bike, and I'm not going to give you a bike because you didn't do what you're supposed to do. So he limited himself. He didn't get a bike, not because of me. He didn't get a bike because of him. Now, do you want another chance, son? Okay, do what you're supposed to do. Do your chores. Be respectful. Say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And be the kind of kid you're supposed to be. And I'd love to give you a bike. And you know, after the kid's like that for a month, you're happy to get him a bike. Man, you've been good to live with for the last month, kiddo. I'll get me a bike and we'll ride together. 
because you're being the kind of kid you ought to be. Now, when we're the kind of kid God wants us to be, he can give us more than when we're being selfish jerks. And therefore, he's limited. He says, well, I can't give you this because you'll misuse it, you'll abuse it, you'll have the wrong attitude about it, so I'm waiting. Grow, overcome. Be what you ought to be, and I'll give you a bike. We limit God. Sometimes he blesses us in spite of ourselves because he loves us so much. And he gives us a certain amount to encourage us and to help us. And we can see that this came from God and, wow, that encourages us to do better. So sometimes he does it whether we deserve it or not. But he's working with us all the time to get us to be more what we ought to be. And sometimes blessing us even in spite of ourselves helps us to be what we ought to be. Thankfully, he has all wisdom and all love and can handle that and know when to do it and when not to. Let's go to one more on this, kind of along these notes in uh, Lamentations 1. Lamentations 1. Well, I can't get past Jeremiah here. Uh, How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations? Speaking of America and speaking of the church. And princess among the provinces, how has she become tributary? She weeps sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. You can look at our nation and all the friends and allies that we have had are turning against us and hating us. And this is a prophecy about Israel, both as a church and as a nation. And because we have been pushy, because we have taken from rather than truly giving to people, You know, our own government has told us what a giving, loving people we are and how we'll give to Red Cross and we'll help out when trouble comes somewhere. But that's not really what our nation has done. Our nation has gone out and taken from all the other nations their wealth, their oil, their gold, their diamonds, their everything, and conquered them if they got in our way and didn't want to give us what they had. Gaddafi was a pretty decent person that his people loved because he gave you, when you got married, he gave you a house. No strings attached, no mortgage. He gave you a house when you got married as a young couple. We killed him because he had oil and gold and we wanted it. Not because he was a bad ruler. No wonder our friends are turning on us. We haven't been good friends with the world. I mean, the right kind of friends. Friends with the world, in in another sense, is wrong. Luke 15. I'm going to go on here just a little bit. Give you a couple of New Testament examples. Uh, Luke 15, and let's begin at about verse 6 here. Uh, 
somebody goes and finds his sheep that was lost. Verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. God looks to those who have been nothing, who have had nothing, who are nothing, and he treasures them above all those who might have needed no repentance, who were okay. But he chooses the weak and the base and uses them to confound the wise of the world. He takes you and me that don't amount to anything and begins to transform us into something that the world can someday look to and say, Wow, how did they go from here to there? And he'll be able to say, by my spirit, by my power, I converted them from this to this. Now, how about you? Let's work with you. The great white throne judgment of the millennium. The angels in heaven rejoice over a sinner brought to repentance. They don't hold his sin against him. They don't hold his past against him. They rejoice over what he is becoming. Now, that's God and the angels. Humans, a little different. We'll hold your past against you. Doesn't matter if you've changed, but you were that. And I expect you might still be. Do we rejoice over a sinner brought to repentance? The Corinthians didn't. Paul told them, put that man out because he's committing incest. And then when he did repent, they said, don't you come back in here. We got rid of you. And Paul said, no, he's repented. Forgive him. Rejoice with him. Bring him back in and love him. Because he repented. He changed. He quit sinning. And that's the way we ought to be with each other. Enough said on that. Let's go to John 3. And begin in verse 23. John was baptizing uh, because there was much water where he was, and some came to be baptized. He wasn't in prison yet. <clears throat> there became a question between John's disciples and the Jews about purifying or purity. And of course, baptism is supposed to wash away sins and purify you. And that's what John was doing. And they said to him, Rabbi... He that was with you beyond Jordan, to whom you bore witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. Speaking of Christ, of course, who was his cousin. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. Prepare the way before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands by and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
<coughs> this my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He had no ego. He had no covetousness. He had no problem with Christ being the greater of the two. He didn't get jealous. Jealousy and envy are part of the carnal mind. They're not the Spirit of God. So John didn't have that. He says, I rejoice. I mean, the bridegroom's getting married. He's got a lovely bride there. I'm not jealous. I'm not envious. I rejoice with him that he found a good wife. And I rejoice that Christ is doing more than me, was his attitude. He must increase, but I must decrease. And we need to look at each other that way. Build each other up, increase each other, and help each other as opposed to putting each other down. That's the way John the Baptist was with Christ. He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. Now, that was his cousin that he grew up and played with. And he said, I'm from the earth and he's from heaven. I'm going to look to him. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no man receives his testimony. It's too big for them. They don't believe it. He that has received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. <coughs> Christ was looking to the Father, promoting the Father. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives not the Spirit by measure to him. He speaks straight from the Father. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Notice that. The Father has given everything into Christ's hand. He loves him that much. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what he's telling us here is God is willing to give all. He gives it all to his Son, and he's willing to give it all to us. Eternal life. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. He's willing to give us absolute peace and a wonderful life forever and ever, just like He and the Son have. Now, we've been talking about friendship. No greater love can anyone have than the man gives his life for his friend. And you are my friends, he said, and he gave his life for us. He set the example that we should follow in his steps. And therefore, we should be giving our lives to each other as friends as he gave to us. Now, we don't necessarily have to give up our physical life for each other, though it could come to that at some point. But we need to be a living sacrifice daily, sacrificing our time, our feelings, our love, our help, our strength, our energy for each other. That was his example that he gave to us. 
How should a friend be? Let's wrap this up in Galatians 5. Giving all. <clears throat> Here's the kind of attitude that God has toward each and every human being on this earth. This is how he feels, and this is what he is. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace. Extreme patience over a long period of time, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. These are the attitudes... These are the purposes, these are the character, these are the personality of God, these, these characteristics here that we just read. And he wants us to be filled with those and be like he is. Now you read that list and you compare yourself, not anybody else, we're not to compare ourselves among ourselves, compare yourself to that and get to work. Because that's what he is to you and me, is all those things. And if we will come to have those attitudes, he will give us life eternity, through eternity, and we will live these things, and there will be no arguing, there will be no fighting, there will be no hurt feelings, there will be no offense given or taken. Because God has emotional control and he does not let himself become offended. And he is careful not to offend anybody else. And he tells us we're to be both of those. So friendship is so very, very important. God shows it to us by giving his only son in friendship and love. He laid down his life for us. Now let's lay down our lives for him and for each other, and become true, loyal, faithful, trusted friends of God and man.